You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, so the end of the chapter. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jared. Appreciate that. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Like I said, we are in our third of three uh, of this mission series. We're recentering and reordering our hearts around God's mission for us as his people in a city. And today we're going to hone in specifically on what does it mean to follow the way of Jesus. It's actually a really dangerous thing to talk about uh, because for many of us and for many in this room, you have inclinations to Think about the life as a Christian as this duty-driven kind of like drudgery of responsibility and weight, and that can really crush people. And so there are a lot of people that have come out of backgrounds where you feel this need to kind of prove your worth through your activity. Well, that's from a church background or from a family of origins uh, kind of background, but you have this need to prove something. And part of us as a church, we want to center ourselves on the love of God in Christ. But in that space, there is and there are things to talk about related to what it actually means tangibly, actively to follow the way of Jesus. And so we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us in the ways that are relevant for who you are, where you're at in life, that you'd hear both an invitation to experience God's grace and love, but also you'd hear an invitation to follow a way of life that is truly life, that is, in Jesus' words, life to the full. And so let's pray that the Holy Spirit would speak this morning to each of us. Jesus, we... Come now and we ask that you would open our eyes to the reality of your presence even now. That this wouldn't be for us uh, just uh, another kind of time to think and engage cerebral uh, with our minds and uh, with our intellect. It wouldn't be a time just to kind of learn more information or transfer information, but there would be an invitation for us to experience your power, your presence, your voice. And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak in power to each one of us this morning? Would you find in each of us, God, would you open up our heart to hear not just about your love, but an invitation to a different way to live? And would you help us to be rooted and grounded in your love and to follow your way of life? We want to be a people that live as salt and light in this world. And we need your help, Holy Spirit, to do that. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to consider um, a, a kind of an imagined, imaginative scenario this morning, and that's about work. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning, and you go to work at a manufacturing plant. And in this particular manufacturing plant, you, you wake up, you go into work, and you punch your time card in, and as you begin your work, you're assigned to different tasks and activities. Uh, Some days those activities are about kind of standing on a loading dock and unloading lumber from trucks, all these trees, and and kind of loading them and carrying them into mills, and all day long you're just loading lumber. 
Next day, maybe your, your task is you're out in the forest and you're cutting down trees. Some days you're on scaffolding and you're nailing together different pieces of wood. Some days you're actually milling lumber and you've got all these different tasks that are sort of the tasks of this kind of industry that you're doing and you're involved in it and you wake up every day, you go to work, you do what you're assigned to do, you follow the instructions, you punch in, do the work, you punch out and you go home. And in time, that task and that activity can feel really monotonous. It might feel kind of boring. You're doing the same kinds of things day in, day out. Eventually, you're feeling a little burdened and worn down by it, forgetting and wondering why this matters. Uh, To make matters worse, you also have this sense that you're perpetually being watched. You have a supervisor who's distant but paying attention. And, uh, And this supervisor is kind of judging how well you're doing. Some days you are working harder than others. Some days you're cutting corners, some days you're giving effort, some days you have no heart, some days you're just looking to kind of take a break and sit on the side, but you know that you're being assessed. You know that you're being looked at. And so that adds a sense of fear of, am I being seen when I feel kind of like lazy and heartless and have no passion? Do they see me do the good things? And how does my supervisor feel about me in the grand scheme of my work ethic? And to exacerbate that even farther, you also have this sense that at the end of your career, when the time for retirement comes, that you will finish and your supervisor will take the cumulative whole of your life and kind of weigh together, kind of like how you did. How many days were you kind of exceeding expectations? How many days were you like just kind of a satisfactory job? How many days were you kind of like not engaged? And they'll kind of weigh it and something about your future is contingent upon this overall assessment of how well you've done. And so every day you kind of live doing these monotonous tasks and these routines and these duties and these responsibilities. You're doing them day in and day out with this sense of guilt at times, shame at times, feeling inadequate, sometimes feeling proud of yourself. But every day is a little different. Your emotional state rises and falls based on how you're doing and you live with this broad sense of either confidence that you've done better than other people and so you feel pretty good about yourself or a sense of inadequacy that you haven't done a good job and you're afraid what's that going to mean doing responsibilities and tasks in a job like that would would beat you down over time it would wear you out to kind of work in those sort of monotonous tasks day in, day out with no heart, no vision, no sense of security, no sense of wisdom, no sense of passion or hunger, it would wear, wear you down. So I want you to imagine an alternative situation. This is weirder. You're like, that was already kind of weird. This is weirder. Um, I want you to imagine uh, that you live on an island. And on this island, uh, you live in an environment and a culture where you've kind of like found out how to engage, but it's not pleasant. There's difficulty, there's hardship. It feels like when you kind of give activity to something, storms come in and kind of like undermine the work you're doing, relationships feel hard, everything feels difficult, and it feels like there's a weight to life and you just feel sort of the brokenness of life. But, But you gather together regularly with a group of people. Maybe it's family members and maybe it's a, a grandfather that's telling you stories of a, of a different country. A different country. In this different country, not on your island, there is a life that is flourishing. There is love, purpose, abundance, goodness, joy, fruitfulness, beauty, health, rest, like identity that's secure. There is something beautiful to be had in this distant country. And what you hear is that there's actually a way to experience that life. But in order to experience that life, we're going to need somebody to go out and cut down some trees. 
We're going to need somebody to haul that lumber into the mill. We're going to need somebody to take that lumber and run it through the mill. And we're going to need people to assemble this ship because we're building a ship to get to this other place. Now that same kind of activity, the same kind of activity that's motivated by a vision and a longing for this experience of life, that's something that captivates your imagination, your hunger, your desire, that's motivating you to move in a different direction, can take those same kinds of tasks, those same kinds of duties and responsibilities and flood them with life, energy, desire, purpose, hunger, where these things that had previously beaten you down now are offering life and motivation that fuel you up because of a longing for where you want to be. There's a famous quote by a guy named Anton de Saint-Exupéry who said this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That there are two different ways to do kind of daily tasks and responsibilities. One is kind of routine, kind of menial, purposeless, visionless, graceless duty, which crushes people. And the other is motivated by passion, hunger, desire, love, vision. Today, we want to talk about some of those tasks of Christian discipleship. Some of the kinds of activities that Christians are called to engage in. But we have to root them, have to root them in a vision for what they're about, why they matter, why they exist, and where they fall in the life of a Christian. Because there are so many churches, so many traditions, so many of us coming out of places where you have felt a call to certain kinds of activity that over time beat you down and wear you out. That's exactly what's happening in Matthew 11. We looked at it last week. In Matthew 11, there are people engaging in religious practices in such a way that was beating them down and wearing them out. It's making people feel driven by duty and obligation, driven to prove something to their society, prove something to God, prove their worth, prove their value. And when they were engaging in these different practices, these religious practices, to try to get kind of approval, afraid of what God might think of them, afraid of what that community might think of them, the sense that they're being looked at and and God's promise to come and restore the kingdom is contingent on them kind of pulling their lives together and following all the rules and following all the laws and not doing the wrong things and doing more of the right things. And and that sense of duty-driven religion to get God to accept you, to get God to come and deliver you on the basis of your work was crushing people. And Jesus enters into that space and he says, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you burnt out? Are you beat down? Come to me. Come to me. I'll restore your soul. That experience of life-depleting, withering work that's crushing you, come to me. I'll restore your soul. It's an invitation on grace. We talked about that two weeks ago. Invitation on grace. Not get your life together and then you can come. It's just this invitation Are you hurting? Can you acknowledge that the way you're running, the way you're living is beating you down and wearing you out and leading to withering? Can you acknowledge that you've been running in the wrong direction? Other words Jesus will use for this this moment is repentance, to turn a different way and to come to him. And he'll restore your soul. What we looked at last week is that invitation isn't just into kind of a positional relationship. It's It's an invitation into a life with God, to be with him. He says, come to me, I'll restore your soul. And then he says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
Take my yoke upon you. We talked about this last week, that that yoke is a way of life. Is that way of life where you're going in your own direction, trying to prove your worth and your value through achievement, accomplishment, accumulation, trying to seek pleasure away from God's reign and God's goodness, is that way of life leading to death? It is. And once you come to the place of acknowledging that, you turn to me, you will experience life, but not just forgiveness, not just heaven someday when you die. I'm here to teach you a different way to live. That Christianity is fundamentally not merely being saved from hell and saved to heaven when you die, saved from a way of life that is in opposition to God's wisdom and reign and goodness and presence, and saved into a relationship and a new way of living that leads to flourishing, abundance, in Jesus' own words, life to the full, the life that is truly life. It's an invitation to a new way of living, and Jesus calls that his yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Like shoulder life, with my wisdom, my way, my practices, my example. Learn from me. Watch how I do it. Watch how I live. Watch how I love. Watch how I sleep and rise. Watch how I commune with the Father and engage with outsiders. Watch how I care for the poor and the marginalized. Watch how I challenge corrupt systems. Watch how I forgive people. Watch how I welcome people. Watch how I hang out with people that other people around me don't like. Watch the way I treat, I treat others when they wrong me. Watch the way I do it. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly at heart. I'm not going to be watching you, like, kind of evaluating every day. Oh, pretty good today, pretty bad. You know, I'm going to count that one against you. Keep track of that. I'm gentle. I'm welcoming. Every time you veer away, I'm right here offering my love again, forgiveness again. Come my way. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And if you come this way, if you follow this way, if you learn from me, you'll find that my yoke, it's easy. Like, it fits right. You'll find a true way to live, the way to really be human. What Jesus is doing is rehumanizing the world. We've turned from God's wisdom and God's presence and love and living life in all these dehumanizing and destructive ways. He says, turn back to me, find forgiveness, grace, reconciliation. I'm going to teach you the real way to be human. I can rehumanize you if you watch the way I live, if you watch the way I engage and watch the way I walk through life. My yoke is easy and that burden is light. It's restorative. It's the way you were designed to live. We as a church family want to hone in on this aspect of discipleship. The way we've been talking about discipleship as a church is that a disciple is somebody who's been reconciled to God by grace, not through your effort, your energy. It's not threatened by your failure. It's not contingent on your successes. It's as you acknowledge your reality, acknowledge your brokenness, acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your need. You come to Jesus and find Wonder upon wonders, the God of the universe loves you. He loves you. Love the way John the Apostle will talk about it. He'll say, what kind of love is this that we should be called children of God? And we are. We are. He loves you, and you'll find love. But in that space of love, in that environment, you also find a new way to live. So we talked about reconciled to God by grace and learning now to be with him, to be with Jesus, to live life by his side. Not trying to do all these things for him apart from his presence, but to stay attached to him, connected to him, and to follow his way of life. It is so important for us as a church family to understand the relationship between the good news of God's grace towards us in Christ and the way that that grace functions to fuel us and motivate us to live in ways and pursue transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ. And there's real activity to be done, but we must hold them together in thoughtful ways. Must hold them together in thoughtful ways. Uh, and, and it's difficult because we come from different backgrounds and different perspectives and experiences. There are some of you that are brand new to Christianity. 
you've not been in any church, this is maybe one of the first experiences or you've been around it vaguely, but you don't have a lot of preconceptions. Maybe you have some, but just new and you're hungry and you're wanting to learn. Puts you in a space to hear the invitation of Jesus in really clear ways and really profound ways. There are some and many in this room that you've come from a church background that taught you in different ways. Some church backgrounds really kind of teach a lot of religious activity with no sense of vision or no sense of God's love or God's grace. Other church traditions talk a lot about God's grace but don't give a lot of clear handles on what it actually looks like to follow Jesus or who God actually is but just kind of a vague sense of he loves you with no clarity of his word and his goodness and his reign. And we as a community are trying to hold on to this reality. What what Jesus communicated to us clearly in the Great Commission is he called us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, telling people the good news that in Christ they can be forgiven of their sins because of his death on the cross. They can be declared righteous before God, which is justification. They can be reconciled to God's presence and enter into this relationship that's, that's governed by and dominated by and on the basis of God's love for you in Christ, you can enter into that. And Jesus also says, and then teach them to obey, to live into all that I've commanded you. It's both of these things. It's always both. So I want you to think like, what's your own disposition? Is your own disposition kind of duty without love, duty without vision, duty without grace, Christian responsibilities that beat you down? Or is your inclination kind of grace, love, kind of float in the lazy river of God's love, wherever it takes you, you know? Um, And what does it mean to kind of pull these things together? A healthy Christian, a healthy follower of Jesus is pulling these things together to know the love of God, to know his grace towards you, to know his mercy is new every morning. He's not annoyed. He's not fed up. He's not losing patience or losing heart. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. You have an identity as his child through faith in Christ that was just given freely. And in that space, because of his love, saying, I want to learn your way of life. God has always been a God who brings both love and authority. Love and authority. When, when I think about life as a parent, I don't feel like, I feel like I'm always learning and failing and learning and failing and stumbling as a parent. But I've over, we have four kids and over the past 13 years, uh, which isn't the fullness of parenting, but there are principles that I'm like learning and aiming for. And they're really simple. Really simple. I want my kids to know, number one, that I love them. I love them. I love who they are. I delight in their personality and their gifts, strengths, weaknesses, their quirks. I adore them. And I want them to know that. For each of my kids, kind of communicating that and finding ways for them to experience that and, and feel that in like a real way for them, that makes sense to them. It takes creativity and thoughts. But I'm, I want my kids to know that I love them. That mom and dad love them. I want them to know love. But I also want my kids to know mom and dad are in charge and that matters. I want them to know authority. I want them to know that we've lived life longer than them and, uh, and we have wisdom that if they'll listen to it and if they'll heed our wisdom, it will lead to a more fruitful, healthier life. And if they decide to reject our wisdom and kind of navigate through life the way that a kid would on their own wisdom, it can lead to difficulty and pain. And we have the ability as parents to create these controlled environments where we teach our kids that authority matters. How that looks for different families, how that looks for different kids, how that looks for different personalities in different seasons, is, is, it's different. It varies. And in fact, as kids get older, you're kind of transitioning out of authority and into influence and advice and guidance, training them and equipping them with the tools and knowledge and skills so you can send them out into the world equipped to live life in wisdom. 
It's the other thing. I want my kids to know love. I want them to know authority. And the third thing I want them to know is that dad falls short of showing you that over and over and over again. And so I need grace from Jesus and I need grace from my kids. I need forgiveness. I'm called to show them what God's like and his love and his authority, but I fall short of that calling perpetually. And I need grace and forgiveness. I don't want my kids to think my parents are perfect and so I have to be perfect. I want them to think my parents were trying to do what God called them to do and they fell short and needed grace and I'm going to try and do what God's called me to do and I'm going to fall short and I'm going to need grace. And that's Christianity, right? The reason why I want to focus on that is because from the beginning, God has always been a God of love and a God of relationship, delighting in us as his creation. And he has always been king of the universe, the one who gives wisdom for life, who tells us how to live. And it's always been these things together. He loves you. He sees you. He knows you. He delights in you. He's not annoyed or perturbed or frustrated or disappointed or fed up or losing patience. He loves you. And he has wisdom for life. And so when we think about what we've done as human beings to reject God's love and presence and his authority over us, to reject him as the one who loves us, in whom our life is dependent, and to reject his wisdom, and we've come over in different directions. We are living life trying to prove we're lovable, trying to prove that we're acceptable, trying to prove that we're worth something, trying to prove it through all these different things. And we're running in all these these ways, like kids that would just like binge on cotton candy if they had permission and then would like vomit. That's like our life. You know, like we are like metaphorically binging on cotton candy regularly. This, this feels good as if things feeling good makes them smart. You know, like uh, this feels good until it doesn't. You know, at some point, you know, eating candy, which like kids are prone to do, you know, you have to like govern that Halloween candy like all year. You just have to govern it because they will just devour it because they lack wisdom. They lack wisdom, but they're kids. They lack wisdom. That's why we're there to help guide them. God is guiding us. And so when we run at life in all of our own ways, choosing what we want to do with our lives, what we want to do with our neighbors, what we want to do with our bodies, what we want to do with our vocation, what we want to do with our sexuality, what we want to do with our finances, the way we want to engage with people that hurt us, the way we want to treat outsiders, the way we want to treat people that we disagree with, the way we, and we're going to do it however we want to do or how the culture around us, it leads to pain, it leads to death. So when God saves us from that life that leads to death, he doesn't just save us to go to heaven when we die. He saves us to a whole different way to live. So we come back and we experience his love. Even though I ran away from you, you still love me? I still love you. Even while you're a sinner, Christ died for you. I still love you. You mean you're not fed up with me? No, I run after you. You mean you're not disappointed? No, I declare you to be righteous and clean through your union with Christ by faith. You are in my family and you are delighted in And he saves us not just to forgiveness, but into a new way, a new way of living. That's why Jesus said, and teach them to obey everything I commanded you. Teach them the new way. Teach them the different way to be human. So a question that I'm asking is like, how are we doing at that? How are we doing at not merely teaching about God's love and forgiveness and presence, but how are we also teaching one another How are we growing and learning to obey everything Christ commanded us? Listen to this quote from Dallas Willard. It's from his book, The Great Omission. The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him. 
Love that. Steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That we are invited to learn a new way. Right here, right now, a new way to experience the life of the kingdom now. A new way to experience flourishing life now. And it's possible. What is that way? What is that way of life? Listen to this. As I thought through, just the, even the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been in for a few years, it's like, what are some of the ways that Jesus called us to live, whether by example or by teaching or by his character? Here's just some of them, just like thinking through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus communed with his Father continually, and he took extended times to talk with his Father for direction, for guidance, for power, for life. Jesus resisted temptation from the enemy, withstanding the enemy's lies by holding fast to God's word that he had committed to his memory. Jesus celebrated with other people. He rejoiced with those who were rejoicing. He wept with people who were weeping. He was hospitable with outsiders. He ate and drank with outcasts. He showed mercy to the hurting and the vulnerable. He healed the sick and brought spiritual deliverance to those who are oppressed by powers of darkness. He practiced Sabbath, not merely as a religious duty, but as a gift for humanity to experience rest and to delight in the Father and to worship. He fasted to cultivate spiritual power. He forgave those who wronged him, even when they weren't asking for forgiveness. He loved those who were against him. He broke down cultural and ethnic and socioeconomic barriers to reconcile divided peoples. He loved the family of God, was committed to corporate worship and fellowship and laying down his life for the good of his brothers and sisters. He spoke hard truths with wisdom and love. He told people the good news of God's kingdom and his redeeming love. He confronted corrupt leaders and destructive ideologies, and he did it with love. He was patient with the brokenness of his friends. He was faithful to his community. He was gentle and humble. He was compassionate and tender. He was courageous and bold. He wasn't anxious. He trusted his father. He was generous, and he lived with simplicity. And he commanded us to follow his ways. He commanded us not to lust or to objectify people. He commanded us and taught us to seriously consider and address our own faults and failures before feeling like we have the wisdom and the clarity and the humility to address the faults and failures of others. He taught us to pray. He taught us to be generous. And on and on it goes. He taught us a way to live by example, by character, and by teaching. And he tells us to teach one another to live into, to follow his way of life. It's a part of our formation. So the question we're asking is, how are we doing? So I kind of like rifle through that list. Where, where are you learning to follow the way of Jesus there? Where are you learning to follow in the way he communed with his father? Where are you learning to incorporate different practices to cultivate spiritual hunger? Where are you learning to rest? Where are you learning to not be anxious? Where are you learning to be generous and hospitable? Where are you learning to be tender and gentle? Where are you learning to be courageous and bold? Where are you learning not to objectify people? by the way you look at them or treat them? Where are you learning to care for the poor and the outcasts? Where are you learning to think about God's mission to reconcile divided peoples? Where are you learning? How are we doing at learning? It's a part of Christian formation. It's fundamental. It's essential. An essential part of Christian formation. To, to earn God's love, 
No way, never. To prove yourself to other people? Not at all. You're welcome. It's grace. It's invitation. But to live according to the wisdom of God, to come under his authority. We were running away from his authority. That's what led to death and pain and difficulty, ultimately to damnation. But even on the life now, we, in this rebellion space, we are running away from God's presence towards a destruction that we are headlong into. And this invitation is towards forgiveness, grace, healing in a new way. A new way. And so we get to learn that together. It's a part of being Christians. It's a part of being the family of God. We get to learn it. We to learn it, and, and it's hard. It's hard. If I were to say, again, just like, hey, you know, be generous. Well, how, how, like, well, just more than you are. Try harder, you know? Like, commune with the Father, okay? I've been trying, you know, try harder, you know? Uh, don't be anxious. Like, okay, I'm trying not, I'm not nervous. I promise I'm not nervous. I promise I'm not nervous, you know? Try harder, you know? Like that old comedy routine, just do it, you know? Just do it. It's trying the goal. Is it just try harder? No, Dallas Willard famously talked about this, this difference between trying and training. Trying and training. Here's what he said. He says, to train means arranging our life around those practices that enable us to, to do what we cannot now do by direct effort. The point of training is to receive power. So we arrange our life around practices through which we get power. Training is about a progression. A year ago, a little over a year ago, I was invited by a friend for his 40th birthday to hike uh, the Narrows in Zion National Park. Has anybody been at the Narrows, Zion National Park? Okay, it's beautiful. Uh, gorgeous place. And, and so there are two ways to do the narrows. You can do the narrows from the bottom up, which is kind of upstream, but you can go about seven miles up. It's the main way most people do it. You can also do the narrows from the top down, which is a 17-mile hike. One way, you gotta, you got to do the whole thing. And it's in a slot canyon in Utah, and you're most of the time in a riverbed. And so my friend, who is a very kind of fit, healthy, kind of like, you know, marathon, ultra-marathon kind of runner, um, told all the people that were going to come with them, like, you have to train. Like, before, if you're going to do the top-down narrows with us, you have to be able to run a marathon. Doesn't have to be good, doesn't have to be pretty, but you just need to be fit enough to run a marathon. And so I heard that, you know, a couple months before the trip. And uh, again, I, I played soccer in college. There was a day when I was healthy and in shape, and, and that was not recently. And... Um, the day was a long, it was 20 years ago, healthy and in shape, not so much anymore, but I kind of thought like, running a marathon, I mean, come on, you know, I got this, it's just a marathon, um, was I like, running a few hours, so, so I like, month before the trip, I'm like, I should probably like, just make sure, you know, I can do this, and uh, I ran like a mile, and I was huffing, you know, I was struggling, and it was so disheartening and discouraging. And uh, I just thought, I, I can't just run a marathon, and I won't be able to do this thing. But a couple days later, I'm like, okay, I'm going to just, like, slowly, steadily train. A couple days later, ran again. A couple days later, ran again, stretched the mile into a couple miles, kind of slowly doing the speed runs and the kind of distance runs and all the different things. And slowly by slowly, over the course of a, about a month, if you, 
I did not train for a marathon in a month. Don't, don't get me wrong. I wasn't like ready, but I'm like, I could walk a marathon now. You know, at least I, you know, I could, I could walk a marathon by now. And so, um, finally got to the point where I felt like ready for it. And we did the narrows and it was beautiful. I like slipped on rocks and fell and hurt myself like pretty bad a couple times, but no big deal. We did it. We did it. The reason why I share that is because it was training. There were things I could do before I could just do the narrows top down. There are things like I couldn't do that, but I could do some things that were inside my power, inside my ability. When, when I think about this invitation to not be anxious, I can't just not be anxious. I have too much insecurity and too much fear, like just try harder. But you know what I can do? I can take time throughout the day. And I can slow down, do what we referred to last week, like the one-minute pause. I can, I can pray a few times per day, Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. I can start my day calming my heart before the presence of God. I can take time before a meeting and say, Jesus, as I go into this meeting, I give everyone and everything to you. I want to trust you, not my own wisdom or my own ideas. I can give, I can give these things to you. I want to give this to you. I can end a day and I can look back and look at my failures and different things. I feel like, oh, that didn't go the way I want. And I can say, Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. I can, I can cast my cares on him because he cares for me. I can do that today. I can do that today. You could do that today. You can come to him and cast those things on him. And if you continue to do that and you train and you grow and you practice these things little by little, like you will become less anxious. Struggle with lust. Huge part of my story, struggles with lust. If it's just like, just don't lust. Don't lust, try harder. It's like, you know, I'm not going to ask for hands, but the amount of people I just tried harder not to lust is nearly 100% of people in the room. You know, it's just like a huge chunk of people. Try harder. Well, like, you start working on, like, why? why? Why do I, like, run to these ways? For me, personally, it was about escaping shame, escaping embarrassment, escaping these feelings of inadequacy. And so for me, lust was about escape. So coming and bringing those things to Jesus and learning about his love, that he sees me, he sees my insecurities, my inadequacies, my fears, my shame, and he loves me. Over time, little by little, I find it's way more restorative to turn to him for grace as one who sees me and loves me and washes me than to try to run away from those feelings in any unhealthy pattern, whatever it might be for you. Something we can do, we can turn to him, we can walk in the light, we can bring those things and let his grace heal. There are things we can do. We can't just like be perfectly like pray without ceasing. Great, got it, done. How are we doing at that? But you can begin to punctuate your day with times of prayer to remember God's presence and retune your heart to his reality, his nearness. And that in time, the reality of his nearness can feel more natural to you. There are things we can do now that cultivate in us the kind of life that Jesus has invited us to live. And we're called to do it. Not to prove anything, not to earn anything, not to deserve anything, but because of his love. So, so last week, we, we talked about these, these practices as a church family, just kind of did a survey. Some 520-something people filled out the survey, thank you. I wanna show you a few things here, and I wanna talk to you about these practices for a minute, about how they function, how we as a church can receive these not as guilt or condemnation, but as invitation to a better way to live, invitation to train together to follow the way of Jesus. Uh, if we can show the kind of all upside, there's a few practices that were the kind of things that you could do daily, up to daily. So we have those here, and then some things that you could do kind of up to weekly, and we'll have those on the next slide. But things like silence and solitude. Silence and solitude, slowing down, being still. As a, as a church family for us, uh, that was a, a lower one that it's hard for us, which isn't surprising on average. It's hard for us 
to, to be still in a world that's loaded with sort of technological addictions and busyness in a city like Denver where activity is off the charts and all these kind of FOMO things that just dominate our lives, to be still with God creates space, which Jesus did regularly, a part of his way of life. It's hard. Is that like shame on us? Or is that, hey, we could learn that together. We could learn to follow the way of Jesus together and find freedom and joy and liberty, and we can be more in tune with where we're at, more in tune with the presence of God and the love of the Father. We can do that. Let's look at the next slide, too. I'm just going to highlight a few examples here. Fasting. Basically, we never fast, ever, as a church family. Didn't surprise me. Just like FYI, you know, now we know. You know, Jesus fasted to cultivate power. Before he went out into the wilderness, when he faced Satan and faced the temptations of the enemy, he had fasted for spiritual power, to tune his heart to the presence of God. And he had equipped himself to face the lies of the enemy by cultivating through the practice of fasting a hunger for God's power and God's presence. It's a part of his way. Does that mean like shame on us if you've never fasted? Like, well, I fasted from, you know, coffee at Lent. Like, well done. That was awesome. Like, what does it learn? What does it mean to learn to actually say no to our flesh and yes to the spirit? We could learn, we could learn about that together. And you might be surprised the things that God would do in you as you step into those practices. You could learn. These ones are interesting. Serving the city, telling people about Jesus, and serving uh, and uh, practicing hospitality towards our our neighbors. These are kind of outward-facing things that for me, I look at, I'm like, okay, there's room for us to grow here. If Jesus says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I commanded. Jesus loved his neighbors sacrificially, generously, Thoughtfully, he saw them, saw their needs, cared about them. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He was hospitable towards outsiders. It's a part of the way of his life. Are we saying, do more, you know, or, or God's going like, to kick you out of his kingdom? No. No, he loves you. You're, you're forgiven, you're washed, you're declared righteous quite apart from your works because of the work of Christ on your behalf. You're welcomed into his family. Now we get to learn. We get to learn. And what happens when we learn? We learn that we're living in a, in a way that's congruent with our design as human beings, that's in tune with the presence of God, the spiritual nature of reality, the reality of awareness of the enemy and his presence, the reality of practices that can dehumanize and, and break us down in painful ways. We're learning a new way to live, and we get to learn how to be human together, the way of Jesus. We get to learn a new way. I'm going to kind of focus in on... Uh, a couple of these outside ones, hospitality towards neighbors. And so for, for a bunch of us here, it's, like it's a rare thing, less than monthly or never, uh, for a lot of us engaging with our neighbors. Is that surprising? It wasn't surprising for me. It wasn't surprising for me. It's actually really rare in our culture to engage thoughtfully with your actual literal neighbors. It's really rare. Most people don't. You move into a house, you get busy doing your other stuff, or you kind of get busy just kind of staying inside your house or in your backyard. The idea of building friendship and relationship, showing love and kindness to your neighbors, is, is rare in our culture. But it is the way of Jesus. So we could learn that together. We could learn that together. We could learn to, to show love and kindness and hospitality to our neighbors. We could grow in that. Serving the city, there's brokenness, injustice, poverty all over our city. Jesus cares about that. He cared about that in his own life, his ministries of healing and generosity and care towards the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. There are things we can grow there. There are ways we can grow. If you look at this stuff and you're like, this church sucks, you know, it's like in, in some real ways, sure. Sure. And God loves us and forgives us and invites us into a journey of training 
to follow his way, to learn these things. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It doesn't lead us by guilt, duty, disappointment, frustration. He loves us. He situates us in his love and says, I'm, I'm showing you a better way, a way that's congruent, congruent with my mission in the world, my love, my presence, my nearness, my wisdom. And we get to learn that together. And that's a beautiful invitation to me. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle. I have a, a humble disposition towards you. I'm not trying to beat you down. I'm trying to liberate you from a kind of life that would beat you down. But I am trying to teach you a better way to live. And my way of living is easy. It, it's, it feels right. And the burden that it brings, if you're living in my presence, walking with me, abiding in my love, abiding in my nearness, staying close to me, that burden is, is light. It's light. And this is what we are invited to live. This is the sort of life we are called to as a people. And if God could, by the power of his Holy Spirit, engage in us a hunger for this, a passion for this, like, yes, I want to follow Jesus. If we would see our life as disciples of Jesus, not merely as like believing some kind of like thing in our minds that we can have security in the future, but as trusting that Jesus is king and he loves us and he laid his life down for us and he's teaching us a new way to live. That understanding of Christian discipleship is like, all right, show me how to live. And I cannot believe how merciful you are and patient you are and gracious you are and how when I run away from you, you run back after me and bring me back with love and teach me again. What a gift, what a joy. What a way to live. What an invitation to the life that's truly life. This is what we get to work on as a church family. And we'll be thinking as a church family, how do we grow in these things in practical, tangible ways? Not to beat each other down, but to invite each other into the life that is truly life. That is the way of Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. The path into the life of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, is through Jesus learning to be with him and follow his way. May God help us. Let's pray. Jesus, we come right now, and we ask for your mercy and your grace. I pray that you protect people against shame or condemnation. If the enemy tries to throw lies at people, you should be doing better. All the you should be's, you ought to be's. If they knew, God, I pray that you just free us from that. You see us you see us in the depth of our being, even the right things we do with the wrong motivations. You see all of it. You see all of it. And you don't turn away from us, but you turn towards us with love, compassion, mercy, and grace. And we want to thank you for, for displaying that love, for demonstrating that love for us. Even while we are running away from you, you demonstrated it in Christ coming, pursuing, showing us a different way, and ultimately laying down his life for us. Help us to comprehend with all the saints, with, with this whole community and your people around this world, different churches right now around this city, may your spirit be poured out in fresh ways to give us the strength to comprehend all of us together the incredible love that you have for your people. Help us understand the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of your love for us in Christ and help us to be rooted and grounded in that love and then to be filled up with all of your fullness, all of your power, with the presence of your spirit that we could walk according to your way, that we'd find joy and that we'd be salt and light in this world. Would you help us, Jesus? And would you help us to help one another? That you would invite us to be participants in your mission 
is an incredible gift. Help us to learn to do this together. Thanks for your patience with us as we stumble our way through it. We're grateful for your faithfulness. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.